Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of Relationship Radio. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing itstartswithattraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to itstartswithattraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. Sex is an important part of marriage, a very important part of marriage. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Beam with MH International. We are Marriage Helper, and we work with people in all kinds of relationships, particularly marriages. When I was earning my PhD at the University of Sydney in Australia, I was studying the correlations between and the causes of marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction, and ample research across the globe in all kinds of different countries over all kinds of different years came to the same conclusion, and that's this, that marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction rise and fall together. This is Relationship Radio, an extension of Marriage Helper International, hosted by renowned marriage and relationship expert, Dr. Joe Beam, and the CEO of Marriage Helper, Kimberly Holmes. We answer your questions directly with research-based principles that you can implement immediately. Regardless of the situation, what we teach will not only make your relationships better, but will also help you to become the best version of yourself along the way. Be sure to subscribe to this YouTube channel and click the bell to be notified every time we release new content. If you have a relationship question, follow the link in the description to see which topic is up for discussion this week. We can't wait to answer your questions and have you join our community. Turn up the volume and prepare to take notes as we begin this week's episode of Relationship Radio. I'm joined here by Kimberly Holmes, our CEO. Now, Kimberly, you haven't been married nearly as long as I, but you have been working with marriages for a number of years now, just as I have. Well, uh, a few more. I'm a tad older than you are. But how often do we understand that if you don't have marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction at the same time, that one's going to negatively affect the other? It's true. The research definitely indicates that as well as the research you've done personally in getting your PhD and your dissertation from the University of Sydney. That yes, a lot of times the people are struggling with something sexually, but it's impacting their marriage or they're struggling struggling with their marriage and it's impacting their sex life. They seem to go very much hand in hand. Oh, yeah. And the research over decades done in many different countries in many different situations found that marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction rise and fall together. Now, we can't document exactly which one is causing the other. Is it the marital satisfaction more often affecting the sexual or the sexual affecting the marriage? And that probably is situational. Way back when I was a freshman in college, my mentor, Paul Torrance, would tell us everything that happens outside the bedroom affects what happens inside the bedroom. And everything that happens inside the bedroom affects what happens outside the bedroom. Well, Paul taught me well back all those years ago, and I have read the research as, again, ample, 
ample research indicating this to be true. And yet at the same time, we find people contacting us all the time asking questions about sex. And I think maybe some of that's because of the fact that people know that when I studied to get my degree over in Australia at the University of Sydney, that it was uh, studying both those things, marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction. So Kimberly, what else do we need to say in preparation for some of these calls we're going to be talking about today where people are asking questions about sex? Any other basic principle we'd like to talk about to begin with? I'd like to ask you a question. Sure. So, so which one do you believe is more important? That's just it. We can't tell from the research. And therefore, I do think it's situational. I think that it's whatever is most important to the person at the time. And maybe they're so interrelated that you can't really ever separate them to begin with. That, that trying to figure out which one has more effect on the other is that they're so symbiotic that you can't really figure that. It's like the bees need the honey from the flowers, but the flowers need the bees to be doing that so the flowers can make more flowers. Well, which one is more important? Well, Mm -hmm. they're both extremely important. I mean, both are being fed and taken care of by the other, and you can't really extract one from the other. And I think that's the case. Unless you are in a marriage where you don't expect sex to occur, and by the way, uh, by the way, I think here in the USA, the last time I saw the numbers, which has been a while, but the last time I saw the numbers, about 3% of marriages in America have never been consummated, indicating that they've had no sexual contact, or at least when it comes to what's called uh, PVI, penile vaginal intercourse. And so at least 3% of, of the marriages in America, based on those numbers from a few years ago, have never had that. But then there's a couple of other statistics. We find that uh, in a research done at the end of the 1980s, early 1990s, a really well done uh, research done through the auspices of the University of Chicago, that when they studied people in America between the ages of 15 and 59. Now, these were people who were married. Now, not many 15-year-olds are married, but some are. When they studied these people, and, and again, 59 being the cutoff age, they found that there was a category called low-sex marriage and a category called no-sex marriage. No-sex meant that they were making love to each other or with each other 10 times a year or less. And those were called no-sex marriages. And then from 11 to 25 times a year uh, was called low-sex marriages. Interestingly, they found that 20%, 20% of the married people, these were married people, 20% in that age group, again, stopping at age 59, were in that no-sex category, meaning having sex with each other 10 times a year or less. And that another 15% were in the low-sex category, people making love to each other 11 to 25 times per year. So a little over a third of married couples in America are having sex with each other less than twice a month. Now, and in a majority of them, less than once a month. And you say, well, is that a big deal? Again, if they're in a situation where neither one of them wants to have sex, that's called being asexual, by the way, that should be okay. But very, very few people, proportionally speaking, are asexual. And we live in a society that's extremely sexual. It's in the movies. It's on the television programs. It's in the articles we read. It's everywhere. And therefore, most people are expected to be sexually fulfilled in marriage. So which one is more important? If you don't want sex, marital satisfaction. If you want both, it's hard to tell. Hmm. So what are the top three things that lead to healthy sexual satisfaction in a marriage? 
Well, for people who present with sexual problems, like they come to a sex therapist or a counselor, the number one thing they present with that's a difficulty is uh, different levels of desire, which leads to different desired frequency which means that sometimes he wants to have sex more often than she does, or sometimes she wants to have sex more often than he does. And and when those things are far enough apart that uh, that is causing some difficulty, that's what leads people primarily. That's the number one reason that brings them to sex therapy. It's like, I want sex more than he does, or I want sex more than she does. And, and the other one is not uh, trying to comply, not trying to help out. Another is that the different level of desire can be quite different between males and females. For example, there's ample research that indicates, now this would not be true of all women, but that for many women, they don't even begin to feel sex desire until they start to get aroused. And so a man might be thinking sexually, and that desire is what he's feeling, which would lead him to want to have sex. A woman might not be thinking like that at all. Now, some women do, I must understand. But once she starts uh, interacting with her husband, once they start kissing, hugging, whatever, then as she starts to become aroused, then her desire comes about. And so it's been indicated that with many women, they really can't differentiate between desire and arousal because they don't really feel desire until they start being aroused. And so if you look at that, differences in frequency, differences in desire, those are kind of the two big ones right there. The third one would have to do with the relationship itself. So when I did research a few years ago that you referred to, and I asked people what had significantly reduced their sexual attraction, and another question similar to that, sexual satisfaction with their spouse, by far, with women, the ones that answered the question, and by the way, one out of every three women gave at least one reason. Uh, one out of every four men gave at least one reason. So more women than men. And the number one with women was uh, having to do with relationship dissatisfaction. I'm not happy with the relationship. And then uh, pretty high, not necessarily number three, four or five, but it's pretty high up there, was um, lack of romantic for lack of a better word, ability, meaning that uh, our sex is not very good because my husband is not a very good lover or my wife is not a very good lover. But more women reported that than did men. Interesting. <laughs> Would you like to get some of the questions about this then? Many people watching us are thinking, no, wait a minute, Dr. Beam, aren't you and Kimberly father and daughter? Mm -hmm. yes. And you're saying, is this freaking you out that you talk about this subject with your daughter there? Uh, when she was back in undergrad, when she was back at the beginning of her college career, she's now working on her Ph.D. Uh, she actually took one of my classes at the university where I was teaching uh, human sexuality. And so one day in class, when I was talking about a particular aspect of the female anatomy, one of the young women in class spoke up and looked at Kimberly and said, does your dad talking about this like freak you out? To which Kimberly said, at our home, this is dinner conversation. Yeah, that wasn't exactly true, but that was hilarious. In other words, we've always talked very openly about these things. And right now. Well, especially when you were going through your PhD. When you were going through your dissertation, it led to much more conversation in the house. 
So, Kimberly, let's go to some of these questions. The first one here is kind of a long question, about a minute and a half almost. But uh, we can talk about a lot of different things from this particular question. So let me see if I can play this here for us. Hello. My wife and I are in a sexless marriage. I can count on my two hands the number of times we've had sex in each of the last four years. When we started dating and we're still in limerence, the physicality and sexuality were good at the point where I felt very connected and thought that we had a great base to build a more deeper, more satisfying sexual relationship as part of the overall relationship. But after a few breaches of trust and a lot of pushing behavior from both of us, we are in the current state of affairs. Now, my wife seems to have completely changed her views on physicality and sexuality. She doesn't like to be touched. She doesn't feel comfortable with the topic of sex, much less thinking about sexuality or having a physical relationship. And previous trauma in her life is starting to come to light that is illustrating this. As a husband who wants to reconnect with his wife badly and wants that physical connection, what advice can you give to maybe help me or to help her to help us regain that physical intimacy? So when this caller refers to push behavior, just to give insight into our listeners and and viewers who are unfamiliar with what that means, that basically means he has been doing things or someone has been doing things to push the other person away. And so we even have an acronym for this. The P stands for pleading, begging, whining, crying, those kinds of actions that that we try and elicit a response back from our spouse, but it typically ends up pushing them further away. The U stands for unengaging. So sometimes a push behavior can actually look like a lack of a behavior because you, you start ignoring the person. You start trying to disconnect in hopes that that's what will bring them back. But then what they might see is that you don't care and it ends up just pushing them further away. Starting unnecessary fights is the S for that. That, which is when I mean, you're just so angry that every conversation you have, you end up attacking them. It ends up making it worse. And the H stands for hovering, tracking, or trying to control. So doing things where you're over their shoulder, putting a GPS tracker under their car, trying to break into their social media account to see what they're doing. All of these things, we tend to have good intentions, but it ends up pushing the other person away. And so therefore we call them push behaviors. They're things we should stop doing. Okay. So the acronym that Kimberly came up with to help explain those things covers a lot of them. And if you go a little broader, of course, there are other things other than what would fit in an acronym. Mm -hmm. And anything that you're doing that leads the other person particularly to feel that you don't respect them or that you don't love them or that you don't like them. And as Kimberly well said, not just the things you do, but the things that you don't do. Now, if I understood what he said correctly, he said that both of them have done push behaviors, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, so let's kind of go back through this. First, he says sexless marriage. Now, a lot of people use that phraseology without knowing exactly what it means, as we defined it for you earlier, meaning 10 times a year or less. But apparently he knew that, or at least he hit the right topic, because when he says sexless marriage, he says, I can count on both hands the number of times each year in the last four years we've had sex. Well, 
technically then that would actually be a no-sex marriage. And then he said, but back at the beginning, and I'll use another word, limerence, that's part of my vocabulary. And if you're a regular listener, you've heard us talk about it before. But Kimberly, just briefly, for the people that haven't heard that, tell them what limerence is. Limerence is the feeling of being madly in love. But more than that, it's typically characterized by 13 different behaviors. And then it feels like the flu. Deep craving uh, for emotional connection with the other person to the point where you'll sacrifice anything or anybody to have that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's uh, characterized a lot by ecstasy. Whenever you think the other person is responding positively, you actually have more dopamine going in your, in your brain and it's ecstasy. And it's also characterized by fear because you're afraid that the other person's not going to stay with you, which is what differentiates it from another kind of love called romantic love. And so it becomes this uh, ag- ecstasy, agony, ecstasy, agony, based on how you respond. But yeah, uh, Fisher and her colleagues, Dr. Fisher and her colleagues came up with 13 different characteristics. And we've added even more to that, mm-hmm. that we have identified over the years. And, uh, and Kimberly, our CEO, has me writing a book about that right now, that based on my Current level of productivity should be done about 10 years after my death. But but <laughs> she's putting the pressure on me that I have to have it done in the next few months. And so we're going to make that happen one or the other. So he says, when we started off with limerence, we were highly sexual. Okay, let me explain a couple of things about physical. He kept using the word physicality as well as sexuality. When people are in limerence, and he said they were, and it's not unusual. Many people new in a relationship do through limerence. Not everybody, but many people do. Limerence has a shelf life. It's going to last somewhere between three months and 48 months. And then if you're going to be together, like if you get married, it's going to finally be replaced with a different kind of love that's not nearly as intense. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. We don't have time to explain here, but it's both biological and anthropological. Let's say it that way. But in limerence, a lot of increase in dopamine, which is ecstasy, but a decrease in serotonin. Uh, that's where the fear comes from. And decreases in serotonin dramatically increase libido. So that the lower your serotonin goes, the more fear that you have, the stronger your craving to be connected to this other person. That's why in limerence, people have such a intense desire to have sex with, to make love to the limerent object, the person they're madly in love with. It's because <clears throat> among other things is being driven by brain chemicals, the serotonin decreases, really increases the sex drive. That's why, uh, and Kimberly, you may remember this from our class in human sexuality at the university. That's why we know that after a couple of years, uh, any couples been making love with each other for beyond two years. Now, it's not like that specific date, but about two years actually decrease frequency and decrease repertoire, meaning they don't do as many different things sexually. Why? The serotonin begins to level back up. And as it begins to level back up, the sex drive decreases. And so almost every relationship has a decrease in sexuality after a couple of years of being together. But it seems like he was talking about more than that, right? He said that his wife began to change what she preferred. So she didn't want touches anymore. I mean, there was a complete 180 from what it sounded like, what he was used to when they were dating to what it was Mm -hmm. now, which my question Mm -hmm. is, does something need to happen to cause that? Do people just shift 
and turn around that quickly? Can that, or is there typically something that leads to that happening? Well, he did say that there was a trauma. So all of a sudden, did that come up? Earlier. Yeah. Earlier in her life, a trauma. Can it suddenly come up? Yeah. Now, we don't have a clue as to what age this couple is. And if we did, I, if, if we were talking directly to him, I'd ask a couple of questions. It's not uncommon, in my experience, particularly uh, dealing with women in their early 30s to start dealing with sexual trauma from their past. Mm-hmm. That all of a sudden they remember their, their terrible uncle molesting them when they were five and those kinds of things. They kind of got buried until they got into the early 30s. Now, why then? I don't know. And can it happen at other ages? Absolutely. But that's when I've seen it happen a lot. And they start dealing with the sexual trauma that have, that happened to them when they were younger. So could it be something like that? Yeah. But it also could be. Remember, I mentioned earlier in the research that uh, that I did that <clears throat> we found that about one out of every three women has significant reduction in their sexual satisfaction with their spouse. And that 45% of those, if I remember the statistic lyrically, and I I won't be much off, but about 45% of those said it was because the relationship had changed Mm. and because the relationship had changed. Now, when you think about the fact that relationship changing, and now I start feeling negatively towards you where beforehand I've been feeling positively towards you, could that also trigger trauma from the past? Because I start feeling the kind of things I felt when that evil uncle or cousin or neighbor did those things to me. And and because I felt some of those same emotions and because I'm angry at you about something, could it then trigger those memories? Absolutely. And could that make things change apparently that fast? Absolutely. But it still comes back to probably what had occurred. I'll give one more physical reason in a second. Probably had occurred is that the relationship, because he said we both had these pushes, things didn't go well. The relationship changing began to lead to this. And then she starts talking about the trauma. Well, based on what I just said, that's understandable as to how that might happen at the same time. There's one other thing. Again, we don't know how old they are. Um, For some women, when they begin to enter menopause, uh, there are certain women, and certainly not all by any means, but uh, some women who feel that part of their value is being able to make babies. And when they no longer have the ability to do so, which they will not after menopause, it's kind of interesting how that some women will actually go through a depression Because now they think they're not as valuable as they were before. Well, that's directly also connected to sex because that's how you make those babies. And so some women become extremely sexual as they first go into menopause. I mean, like much more than they've ever been. But some women on the other side of menopause come out to where they're just basically asexual because they feel they've lost their sexual identity. I can't make a child anymore. Therefore, I don't have that. Now, obviously, we're having to guess as to which of those it would be with this lady. But but are there several different possibilities as to how they got to where they were? Yes. But did you notice the one commonality in all of that other than the physical stuff? The the relationship really affects it and the relationship going badly can really affect how a woman would feel about wanting to have sex. Could a man as well, but no more so a woman. Uh, there's a researcher. I'm not sure if you pronounce her name, but soon or Basan. I actually once emailed her and asked her how to pronounce it. And she said, just like it looks. <laughs> so I still don't know. <laughs> okay. And she's done a lot of interesting research about how women um, 
open themselves up to being eroticized. Uh, she has some brilliant research on that, by the way. But basically what it boils down to is this. Men, if they get uh, aroused, it's everybody knows because certain physical attributes take place. But there's been fascinating research with women, the kind of research that I could never do, where they, uh, they can actually uh, measure basal congestion with, uh, with inside, uh, inside of her vagina. And, and they can measure what the lubrication is taking place and all those kinds of things. And they have found from that kind of research, and again, this is not the research I would do, but they found from that research that women can become physiologically very aroused and have no mental awareness of it. None. Because what has to happen with women is that it has to happen in the mind and not just what's happening about connected to the body, but what's happening in the mind as to what she thinks and what she feels. And even if her body is responding, if she is not responding emotionally to this, she doesn't feel any arousal at all. As a matter of fact, may feel repulsion. Because then if the guy touches her and he said, she doesn't want me to touch her. Right. Just the fact of touching mm -hmm. her can be repulsive, even if her body finds it erotic. Her mind doesn't. And it all comes back to the relationship, how it is right now, what it has been, even what she anticipates is going to be and, and how she is interpreting his actions. Now, can the same thing happen to men? Well, I actually said to Dr. Bassan or Bassoon, I said, I think the same thing applies to men. She said, I think it does, too. But she said, I study women. And I said, OK, I understand that. And so we look at it and go, hmm. The fact that she changed could be physiological, does have something to do with the trauma based on what he said, apparently has something to do with the relationship based on what he said, the fact that they're both pushing. And so she has moved to the point that uh, even if she would have normally found that exciting, she doesn't now because the relationship has changed. Now, that's a long explanation to get us to his question. He right. said, so what do I do? Now what? Now what? <laughs> <laughs> now what? Now what? If there are physiological things such as menopause, then then the physicians can help with certain prescriptions that can help that. Okay. And I would definitely go for those things because you'll need those things. On the other hand, <clears throat> it would be a matter of if she really went through the trauma that you talked about, there are some counselors and therapists who are really good at helping people deal with that kind of trauma. Kimberly, you are, you have your master's degree in psychology. Uh, it would seem to me that counselors really shine if they're good counselors, really shine when it comes to helping people deal with those kinds of things, right? EMDR is a very effective evidence-based uh, pra practice of therapy that can really help people overcome traumatic thoughts from the past. EMDR is very hands-on, so and it takes a lot of work, but it basically is all about rapid eye movement and desensitizing your thoughts and the way that your body reacts to thoughts. To It's not going to get rid of that thought, but it will take away the, the physiological reaction in the body from that thought. And then cognitive behavioral therapy is another, again, evidence-based, highly effective in helping to control thoughts and move forward at dealing with more with behaviors and moving on. 
And and those, if you're going to look for a therapist that does those, always ask for a five-minute phone call up front. A good therapist will do that and find out how much experience they have with things like MDR and like with cognitive behavioral, uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Not just that they took a class on it. How much experience do they have with it? Now, he's asking, but oh, wait a minute. Okay, so I hear you. And you're recommending that? Yeah, we are. But if you're thinking, so what can I do? Listen. Listen, make it safe for her. Don't try to teach her. Don't try to help her change her mind. Listen to what she feels and what she thinks. Right, Kimberly? Absolutely. Absolutely. That goes a long way. Don't try and fix it. Don't try and and make it worse by pushing even more to try and, and make something happen sexually. But listen and allow her to feel comfortable opening up to you. And don't be defensive. So if you say, okay, let's just talk about these things. And she's comfortable enough in a certain environment situation where she will, if she starts off by saying, well, you've changed, don't get defensive. <laughs> just say, I'm probably have, uh, help me understand how I can be better for you. Don't be defensive at all. Don't explain yourself. Just listen, 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 because you see when people can talk about it. Now, again, she may still need therapy from the trauma, but if she can talk about it, so let's say, let's say you have a woman who's lost some of her identity because she's been through menopause. Letting her talk about it can do a lot toward rep- repairing that where she can get past it. Like, well, but don't say, oh, no, 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 you haven't lost your identity. That's just a little thing. Don't tell her that. <laughs> you listen to her, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, we've taken longer on this question than any question I can remember in recent history, but we got, we were able to lay a lot of foundation for the next questions that are going to come. So to summarize what we were just saying, understand that everything that happens outside the bedroom affects what happens inside the bedroom. Everything inside the bedroom affects what happens outside the bedroom. Do everything you can to restore the relationship without pushing to restore the relationship. And, and the best way to do that is by listening. Okay. If she's willing to talk about sex, uh, then we have a course we can recommend. We will in a few minutes that you can actually get to go through together at home. And you can talk about it if she's willing. If not, we have other things that can help you with your relationship. Because right now, I wouldn't try to repair any physicality. If she needs help with that, that's what physicians are for. I would try to help her with the relationship. And that's going to take some time to do, but it is doable. Right, Kimberly? So what would we recommend for that then? Recommend the Spark. We have a course that, I mean, you did. You put a lot of time and effort and a lot of research backing based for it. But it is all about helping a couple learn how to talk about sex and talk and not even just talk about sex. Even before that, it's getting the couple to think about their own sexual wants and desires, how to communicate that with the other person, how to listen to the other person when it comes to theirs and, and how to fantasize together, how to have more sex, more satisfying sex more often is ultimately what the spark does. They can get it on our website. Absolutely. And in the meantime, if she's not willing to do that, then we would recommend our online courses. You can look those over. You can also talk to one of our coaches, if you wish, about how can I best help my wife and I? Uh, how can we repair the relationship? Because that's the only thing you can control is not the relationship, but you and what you can do to help her 
and the two of you repair the relationship. 13 years, happily married. Um, we have a good marriage. Um, since we got married, he has always had a lower sex drive than I have. Um, on top of that, he rarely gives me compliments. So I struggle with feelings um, of being desired by him and, one, and wanted by him or feeling like he thinks I'm attractive. Um, what can I do to not feel so attractive, unattractive in my husband's eyes? Words of affirmation are totally my love language. Um, he says he loves me. Um, and he finds me attractive, but that's usually only when I'm really upset or really pressing the question. So Kimberly, she said married 13 years. That might give us a guess as to her age. So let's say she married. I think people are coming to getting married now, like mid 20s. So that could make her like 35 to 40, somewhere in that range. And we're guessing we don't know. Okay. Did you hear her say basically that she determines her own attractiveness based on whether she thinks her husband finds her attractive? Now, you're the expert on pies. So why don't you teach her a little bit about pies right now? And and oh, before that, when she said her sex drive is stronger than her husband's, there's, mm-hmm. that's not unusual. It's not the most common, but it's certainly not unusual. So there's nothing wrong with her. There's nothing wrong with him necessarily. It's just that's how they are. Let's talk about pies, and then let's talk about how we can help her teach him how to give her affirmation. Yeah, because that's that's a huge key part to this. Right. So as she said, she's placing a lot of her own self-confidence and self-worth into what he does or does not say to her. And the reason that that is so frustrating and not sustainable long-term is because when you put your, your self-esteem anywhere outside of you, then it is never going to return as full as you want it to. There's actually a lot of really interesting research on self-esteem and the places that self that self-esteem comes from. And, and when people tend to put it in something more external. So um, in the sense of, Sometimes self-esteem comes from academics or, or success in athletics or in all of these different things, what other people say. And what they found is people who put more emphasis on that tend to have a lower self-esteem than people who are focusing on self-motivated tendencies. So people who are focusing on just being sure that they that they do the best that they can, that they show up at all the times that they said they would, even if they don't achieve the same amount of things as someone else, as long as they are more internally motivated by it and internally focused, they're going to have a higher level of self-esteem. So all of that to say, we talk about becoming the most attractive that you can be by focusing on your physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual attraction. All four of these areas are important. But if you were to put any of these areas into someone else's hands, so to say, by waiting for them to say positive things about you in relation to it, then you're going to be chasing that for forever because it's not going to come when you need it. What you have to learn how to do is realize that it, it comes from within you and it comes from believing positively about yourself, believing good things about yourself, knowing that you are good enough, you are enough without someone else having to tell you that those things are nice but they should not be where it stems from. It needs to originate from within you 
and from within myself. I mean, it has to come from each of us within, within ourselves. So what you can do is when you start doing the things to focus on becoming the best you can physically, getting enough sleep, eating right, working out intellectually by growing your mind, learning, reading books, taking courses, emotionally by doing the things to evoke emotions within others they enjoy feeling. Uh, You can do that by having positive and healthy relationships, going out with your girlfriends for a girl's night out, being, you know, listening to your children, hanging out with them, not always being on your phone, spiritually by doing things that provide a greater good to the community. You're taking control of that. You're doing those things. And that is going to build your confidence. It's going to build your own self-esteem to where you won't need that external validation from the outside looking in. So in terms of how this works sexually, which this could also go into sexual confidence. I think we should have a conversation about that. But sexually, you don't need, it's nice to hear that from him and you need to have a conversation with him, which is what we're going to talk about next. But realize that if you're constantly placing that on him and waiting for it, it's only going to be more negative for you. It's only going to be harder for you to just be confident about yourself first. Very good. I like that. And so it comes out of the inside of you. So even evoking emotions would be do the things that evoke uh, positive emotions within you about you. A good one, too. I realized this. It was an aha moment for me on a couple of days ago. I wasn't having a great day. I was in a super negative mood. And then I was listening to someone on a podcast the next day talking about how one way to stop negativity in your life is by stopping negative. And I thought that totally relates to emotional attraction because it's not just about evoking emotions within others. But if I'm evoking emotions within myself, I don't like feeling like focusing on the negative, focusing on or any of those things, those aren't things I even like to be around. So you have to stop doing the things you don't want to do towards others, even within yourself, about yourself. Absolutely. And so uh, if soaking in a hot tub, a bubble bath helps you feel better about yourself, then that's worthwhile to do, right? Take time to do that. If they're taking the walk, all those kinds of things that help you feel better about you. Now, it doesn't remove liking when somebody else gives you the compliment. But um, I'm going to guess, based on what you said, that your husband is the kind of guy who doesn't typically think to do things like that. That doesn't mean he doesn't find you attractive. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Uh, They're just different personality types, and some are very vocal, Mm -hmm. and some are kind of reticent. And the reticent, particularly a reticent guy, is not going to be telling you all the time that he loves you, that he desires you, that all those kinds of things, because he's just not that vocal a guy. But what I heard you say, young lady, is that when he does say it, it's usually because you're upset and that you then deny the validity of what he said. Why? If he's really a good guy and you don't believe he's just an outright liar, even if he says it when you're upset, why wouldn't you accept that? And here's why you're thinking, because I pulled it out of him. Ah, that's why you doubt it. So don't pull it out of him. Just be the best you can be. So Kimberly, what kind of uh, communication dialogue could they set up where she could help him understand her need for affirmation so that uh, he, because he loves her, uh, can start modifying his own behavior to help her out a little bit? Yeah, the best thing to do is not in the middle of when it's hurting you. So not right after sex, when he didn't say something you wanted him to say, but instead on a normal day when things are good, then try and sit down with him 
and away from distraction, away from phones, away from kids, all the things, and say, hey, I wanted to talk to you about something I need. What I would really appreciate is if after, during sex, whatever it is you need, and be very clear on what it is that you need, I wish that you would do more of this and ask him to do it. Now, here is where he may feel uncomfortable doing that. So then how do you move past that? If he is like, oh, I don't know if I can be that vocal. I don't know how to say that. I don't feel comfortable doing that yet. Then you start to compromise and bridge that gap. So how do you do that? Well, among other things, it's, it's behavior modification 101. <laughs> <laughs> that gets rewarded tends to get repeated. So when he does say something about you look really good today, Give him some kind of reward. I mean, maybe a peck on the cheek. Oh, wow, that felt so good. Thank you for that. That can actually be a reward if he cares about how you feel, which I'm sure he does. But if you want behavior to be repeated, reward it. Don't be negative when you don't get it. That can actually extinguish it. (laughs) When you do get it, reward it by at least acknowledging it. Thank you, baby. I really needed that today. Or thank you. That makes me feel good. And you can learn how to do this. But the main thing here is what Kimberly went through explaining. It's you becoming confident about you. I think it's in the book, Kimberly, The the Art of Falling in Love, that I wrote about. I was doing a, it was in Louisville, Kentucky. I was doing a a seminar once and hundreds of people were there. And a woman walked in the room and everybody in that room watched her from the time she came out the door till the time she sat down. Uh, She was the, the most confident, and I don't mean arrogant. Arrogance turns me off, but the most confident and therefore extremely sexy. Not only every man was watching, every woman was watching her. And and uh, my good friend, Mark, that you know, was with me at that thing. And he said, wow, she's pretty. Here's the fascinating thing. By the BMI scale, she would have been obese. She was not thin. She would have been obese, not just overweight, obese. And yet she was the prettiest and sexiest woman in that room. Why? It's because she had the confidence, not arrogance. Arrogance turns people off. But but those things you talked about, this woman had obviously mm-hmm. done for herself. It makes a difference. Okay. All oh, the difference in the world. Let me see if we can get one, maybe two more questions in. Uh, let me get over here and look at them. My wife, she basically had an emotional affair a while back, and she now had one that was online sexual affair with somebody at church. But whenever we talk about sex and intimacy, she throws it out there like I shouldn't expect to be intimate. And it's very frustrating knowing that she is turning out was a very sexual person and was letting herself free with this guy. And for her to think that she could never get there with me. I mean, I'm kind of coming to the realization maybe not to jump the gun, but maybe she doesn't see me in that way, that she married me for other reasons and not a sexual type person, which is a little bit of a bait and switch from what I remember when we were younger. I want to be in a passionate, loving relationship. I understand I can't compare this to limerence and what she went through and the crazy excitement. Appreciate your your advice or feedback on this one. Kimberly, did you notice he used the phrase bait and switch? And he referred mm-hmm. to the fact that back when they were first together, that that she was very sexual, and now she's not sexual at all, and he's saying it's bait and switch. And then he said, maybe she didn't marry me for that. Maybe she married me for other reasons altogether. 
Now, interestingly, I've heard that bait and switch thing so many times from so many husbands. Even if they don't use that exact phrase, it's the same thing like, this is how she was, and this is how she is. And so something she messed up because we used to have this and then we have that. Well, tying back to that, it's not really bait and switch. And we, we talked about this earlier in this in this uh, podcast. You can go back and check it. That it really boils down to the fact that when you've been making love with each other for a couple of years, a thing called habituation takes place. You become used to each other, which can lead to a thing called sexual boredom. And so thinking that a person is going to be as sexual as they were when you first got together is something that's actually not very logical. Are there some people with just super high sex drives that'll stay super sexual until they're 95 years old and drop dead? Yeah, but that's typically not the rest of us. Most of us are not like that and things begin to change. And so while you're saying, well, I understand this is not limerence, we're going to talk in a moment, just a moment about how she was going to have to learn something about reality. But in the same time, and and, and I understand your frustration. So don't think that I'm trying to tell you that you're the guy who's wrong. Please don't let me come across that way. But there's also some reality here for you to understand. Okay. And which is that as time passes, people become less sexual. Now, here's the good news. The longer you're together, and particularly when you get into a little bit later years, like 50s and 60s, uh, Snarsh is some really interesting research that says that the best sex you'll have is in your 50s and 60s with the partner you've been with for a long period of time. Will it be as often? No. Will it be as much variety? No. But it'll be a deeper, deeper emotional connection, which will make it that much better then. And so thinking, oh, well, maybe she didn't marry me because she found me sexually attractive. I understand how you think that way. I understand how you feel that way. But I'm telling you that that's not what's going on here. What's happening is that You've been together for a while. Now, Kimberly, she said, okay, he said, okay, but when she was in limerence, she became super sexual. Even based on what we said in this mm-hmm. program, we know there's a physiological reason for that, right? A chemical reason. Right. Serotonin. And you said it was when serotonin drops that libido increases, right? Because it's the calming, the calming neurochemicals. So when serotonin increases, which means someone's more calm, <laughs> libido is going to decrease. That's exactly right. And anybody who has taken an SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor like Prozac or Lexapro or Alexa or Zoloft, there's a bunch of different kinds of them, have found that their sex drive decreased. Well, why? Mm-hmm. Because those, those drugs, those medicines, increase the level of serotonin in your brain, which means your sex drive actually decreases. That's why sometimes when people are on those meds, they actually have to take another med to help them still be sexual. And so they actually mm. do at the same time. And, and so understand that. Why was she all that sexual with him? Well, that's what limerence does. Serotonin decreases. They become much more sexual. And I know that doesn't make it better. I know that doesn't make it like, whoa, well, that's the case. Who cares? No, I know that. It still hurts very much to think that she was. But then when that serotonin starts decreasing, I mean, I'm sorry, starts increasing when that other relationship starts ending, then then her sex drive is naturally going to decrease, and it really has nothing to do with you. But Kimberly, there's one other thing, and people hate it when we talk about it. Explain to them what it means when sometimes people coming out of a limit relationship go into mourning. Mm. 
when someone's in limerence, it's still a relationship and there are very strong feelings that the, the person has towards that limerent object as we may put them. And so when that relationship ends, it is like any other relationship ending. So it is very common for the person to go through mourning the loss of that relationship. Just like if it, I mean, just like if it, had been, they were dating that person before they were married and it would end. I mean, it's, it is similar paired on top of that. Then you have guilt. Most of the time, feelings of shame, remorse, all of the consequences are kind of coming to a head of everything that's happened. And so there's a lot of feelings of loss. I've lost my, my, who I was, I've lost what I had. I've lost that relationship. Have I also lost my future? So there's a lot of things that are going on, which can, of course, decrease libido, for sure. Mm-hmm. Because they kind of start numbing out because of all that pain. And and that last thing you said is really, really important. Have I lost my future? Not that they think they can't have a future with you. They're not thinking about a future with you at all at this point. They're not evaluating a good, bad, or indifferent. What happens in limerence is people spend up to 85% of their waking hours, up to 85% of the waking hours, fantasizing about the future with that limerent object, the person they're, quote, madly in love with. And so part of what they're mourning, and very insightful, Eric Kimberly, part of what they're mourning is the loss of that fantasy. This is what I fantasize. They would been, they've been daydreaming about what life's going to be like. Those daydreams had no connection to reality, but they were exciting. They were wonderful in that sense. And now, so they've not just lost the relationship with the person, they've lost that daydreamed, fantasized, perfect future where Prince Charming and Cinderella live happily ever after. It goes away. And so part of what you're facing probably is the fact that she's doing some grief. Okay. I know you don't want to hear that. I know it it hurts you to think that way, but this is something that happens not because she wants it to, it happens because she's a human being. And the fact that she's not being sexually attracted to you right now, there are even more reasons, but we're out of time. We can explain that. Here's the good news. You can repair it. Kimberly, uh, why don't you tell them what we offer to help them repair that? Well, the best thing that we can do to help repair your relationship, especially if after it's experienced something like an affair, is the couples workshop that we offer. We have couples come through this every weekend that we have it, which is multiple times a month. And in situations where they have been hurt a lot of times by an affair, they, they're trying to rebuild, trying to move past, trying to understand what, have, what has happened. And in the workshop, they're... They get clarity, they get direction, they get what they should do to move forward on how to fall back in love and repair their relationship and and re- and how to not let that affair define one of them or the marriage as a whole moving forward. And so that's the absolute best thing that you and your wife could do together. Both of you will gain amazing insight from it. I would bet that it's also going to help your sex life as well. Because as we've said so many times in this podcast, that whatever happens outside the bedroom affects what happens inside and what happens inside affects what happens outside. So is huge in helping with that. Yeah. There's some research I can't refer to in detail uh, because of the way it was done, but uh, we found that 90 days after the workshop, not only had marital satisfaction 
increased dramatically, but sexual satisfaction had increased dramatically because marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction go together. So to find out about the things we talked about, uh, Spark Your Marriage, which is that uh, online video series that you can work through together, PDFs you fill out that'll help you enhance your sex life, and and the workshop and et cetera. How can they find that? Before you summarize all the things we talked about today, which you do so well at the end, how do they find all these things? You can find anything we offer, marriagehelper.com under our courses is where you can find the Spark program. You can also find the Save My Marriage course there if that's something that you're interested in. Our workshop, you can find out more about that on our website as well. But the best thing to do if you want more information about the workshop is to actually schedule a call with one of our client relations reps. And that's a free call. They're going to figure out more about your situation and answer your questions about how the workshop can help you tell you about upcoming dates, see where there's availability because our workshops are filling up. They, I mean, if you're interested in a workshop date, do not wait till the last minute. It will be taken. We have people calling us and and this, forgive me if it sounds like some kind of sales push. It, It frustrates me because we exist to help people. It frustrates me because we exist to help people and we're getting calls from people saying, you've got to get me into the workshop. You've got to get me in. And those things are just over full already. And so, indeed, if you're interested, talk to the client rep. And if you find it's going to fulfill your needs, don't dally because we really, really, really would like to help you. And our client reps will listen. They'll understand and they'll help you understand various products and services we have that can help you. So, Kimberly, what a job to summarize this. This is the longest podcast we've ever done. It's coming up on 55 minutes, I think. <laughs> uh, well, it'll be a little bit of editing, so maybe it'll be a little shorter for them. But summarize all this. The first key takeaway is to remember that everything that happens inside the bedroom affects what happens outside the bedroom. And everything that happens outside the bedroom affects what happens inside the bedroom. And so many times when there are sexual issues within the marriage, especially if the issues are not just physical, then that means we need to look at relational. So what are the things that we can then do to make the relationship better so that the marriage will be better? Listening to each other, focusing on not trying to fix the person or fix what they are feeling, but the process of staying in love, growing deeper in love, learning how to have a really healthy and strong relationship is there's a lot that goes into it. And that's one of the reasons that I believe what we do, especially in our workshop, our couples workshop that we offer is so powerful because we teach all of those things. And I believe it is the best thing that any and every marriage could and should go through multiple times throughout their years of being married. So definitely check that out as well. The second key takeaway that I have from today's episode is that sometimes there are physical issues. Sometimes there are physiological issues with hormones or with neurochemicals in our brains that really need to be addressed by a mental health provider because it is affecting our sex life. And so if that is the case, then go to a doctor because nothing that we say is supposed to be taken for medical advice. So be sure to go and check with one of your physicians and see what kind of things that you could get on or speak with your spouse and encourage them to go see their doctor if you think they might be having an issue because that can help work wonders. And then the third key takeaway I have from everything that we've talked about is to remember that the real source of attraction comes from within yourself. 
So instead of just trying to, to wait until your spouse says or does something towards you to make you feel attractive or make you feel sexually attractive, focus on what you can do to realize that you are worth it and you are good enough inside of yourself. First and foremost, the person that you hear more than anyone else is yourself inside of your mind. So begin to say better things about yourself and not just that, but begin to do things that will actually help you feel like you are accomplished, that you are moving forward and that you are attractive, focusing on the physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual aspects of it. Those are the key takeaways I have. If you want more on how to learn more about attraction and things that you can do on a weekly basis to become more attractive, then be sure to check out my podcast. It starts with attraction, which you can go to and listen to anywhere you listen to podcasts. Be sure you subscribe. And just like with Relationship Radio, be sure you subscribe here and leave a review. That helps more people to find us. It helps us reach more people. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure you're subscribed to our YouTube channel and leave a comment. Tell us what you thought of this episode. We love, love, love hearing from you. With all of that being said, you can find our show notes below. You can reach us at marriagehelper.com. You can also find in our show notes how you can connect with one of our client relations reps in order to get more information about how we can help you. Remember to subscribe, share this with a friend who is in need. And until next time, we believe there's hope for your situation. We want to help you find that hope and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you, Dr. Beam. See you next time. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Relationship Radio. Please refer to the notes in the description to learn more about any resources mentioned in this episode. Please visit our website at marriagehelper.com for more information about our online courses, marriage workshops, and coaching. If you have a question you want to ask Dr. Beam and Kimberly Holmes, follow the link to see which topic is currently up for discussion. Remember to like, subscribe, and leave a comment. We exist to help save marriages and strengthen families. We look forward to interacting with you on the next episode of Relationship Radio.